What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. Welcome to Fright School. Are you ready? Class is in session. Welcome back to Fright School. Hello, Joe. Hi, Joshua. Sometimes I feel a bit like RuPaul on on this because it's like always trying to find a different way to say "bring back my girls." So it's it like Michelle Visage, <laughs> Joe Fright School. Yeah, the hilarious mm. Joe from Fright School. <laughs> right. I wish wouldn't that be fun to be on that show? I would totally go on there to be a judge. I think it'd be fun. Not that I have anything to add to. I, I, I have no do- other than being a queer person that um, flirted with a fashion degree twenty years ago. I don't have any authority on the subject of drag. But I guess that's well, not stopping anybody on the internet, so no. be a judge. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> little white girl teenagers on the internet think that they Yeah, calm down, the, the Madison. Calm down, Sarah. I think that our challenge we would come asked to adjudicate would be like an acting challenge, and it's like a Scream Queen style acting yeah. challenge. Exactly, which I, that would be awesome. Anybody listening from... Logo, Bravo, MTV, VH1, Paramount, whoever the hell owns RuPaul's Drag Race anymore. The show, obviously. Because nobody owns RuPaul but RuPaul herself. She has uh, a whole fracking empire. Yeah. So happy Black History Month. Wow. We're just (laughs) off and running. You have to listen to the last episode in order to understand why that's funny. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we're in our second uh, episode in uh, this year's um, Horror Noir. Uh, tip of the hat to Horror Noir. What's going on, Joe? What have you been doing? How are you doing? What's new, <laughs> pussycat? Whoa, Wait. whoa. <laughs> Joshua, I've been like, I, I had a very difficult holiday season as we come to talk about, which like, uh, I do appreciate there were friends who heard that texted me immediately. And I was like, oh, thank you. Valentine's Day? No, the <laughs> no. Oh God. Anyway, in, by the time this comes out, it'll Valentine's Day. I think it will be this coming Wednesday. But I know anyone loves hurting? me. It's the, now's the time to let me know. Yeah. All right, sorry. You're trying to talk about your mental health. Um, yes. And thank just you. so you know, depending on what you say in the next moment, you may get a bill from me. Do you take insurance? <laughs> Do you take Mm-mm. insurance? No, I'm not dealing with that shit. I'll give you a super bill. 
Actually, I can't do any of that yet, but uh, it's no. fun to talk about and dream about the day that will happen. Go ahead, Joe. Sorry. This is no. about you. Let's center you. You're, you're the client. <laughs> We're centering your experience, your knowledge of yourself. Thank you. What's going on? Um, you know, I um, realized that I have been like in this like very, I've been in a very reflective place. And one thing that I've been revisiting over the last in, in like January was just kind of like the queer media that is like my root, <laughs> my root. Um, and it's really interesting because like I rewatched Love Simon. I rewatched, I'm in the middle of rewatching Looking on HBO. And I read this lovely article that was like 10 years of looking, talking about the impact of the cult classic. Like, it's not great, right? And neither of those things are great, and they're made for very specific audiences. They've they do their best to have as much of a wide appeal. They're still not great. And I love that like I can look back on that now and place what it is that I saw in those films, in those TV shows that resonated with me. And thinking about it, thinking about it now is interesting. Because in many ways they hold up and in many ways they don't. But it's just cool to like remember how you felt when you watched something for the first time. Have you ever had that feeling before, like recently oh. or like lately? Yeah, right? I think I talked to a couple of weeks on the back on the show that I had been doing a rewatch of Queer as Folk, the 2000, That's right, the, yeah. the American mm-hmm. version. I've been slowly rewatching it and I'm down to the last couple episodes of it, which I have not watched in the it started in 2000 so it ended 2005 so almost what is almost 20 years ago the season finale so next year will be 20 years since it ended and i haven't really watched them since then because i don't i'm not as big a fan of the later see i enjoyed i have more memories about the first couple seasons and more stuff tied to that sure so yeah i know yeah i know what you're talking about and looking back and examining especially queer media how it shifted, but mm-hmm. what, like what's happening? See, this is like a whole other podcast we could do. <laughs> if, we, like, if we really want to not sleep and have no time for personal sure. lives, we could do yeah. a whole thing on just like deep diving into queer media, even especially relational stuff, uh, things about what speaks to love, what speaks to what our relationships are supposed to look like. Yeah. But what is and it? So it's just making you, nostalgic it's making me nostalgic (laughs) oddly enough it's not depressing i think it's Mm -hmm. more depressing of how like into it i was at the time and starved for i was asking that because you were attaching it because you were like oh i had a difficult holiday season so i was just trying to see what Uh, a difficult holiday season that i'm coming out of that like i'm able to these are things that i haven't watched in a while because they have such an attachment to me that now i'm able to look at it and mm-hmm. not confront, but I, that's not the right word, but I, I'm able to engage with the content oh. and in engaging with the content, interrogating like how far I've come, which is actually really great. That's what I, cause I allowed myself to feel the depression in December and now I'm coming out of it and it's all of it is in me. The deep work is all, yeah. it's all in me. <laughs> oh, she's going to I'm therapist. every CBT patient. It's all in me. <laughs> Anything <laughs> I want done, baby, I already have the tools to figure out how to do. Can you create a, I a would song? I just write a whole from? song. Yeah, and you're going to have a hard looking. time getting me to write a CBT song, but go ahead. <laughs> it, specifically with looking, because I was actually just talking about this uh, with another friend earlier that 
like when I w- when looking came out in 2014, like I had maybe one or two friends like queer friends we hadn't we were friends but we hadn't um done the show yet we hadn't started right. fright school yet and we were involved in like creative projects so but we hadn't like we hadn't gotten as close as we are now and i just remember thinking like man i really want to have a tight knit group of queer friends that i can be like affectionate with in the way that like these men on the screen are allowed to be affectionate with each other. Mm -hmm. And also in a way that there's no sexual tension or there's just, it's, it's pure. The purity of it is the fact that the, it's the friendship that has sustained them. And I think about it now and it's, yeah, I have most of my closest friends are queer to be perfectly honest. And it's, I've definitely worked really hard to build the life that I have now and it's a really good one. And so it was nice. It's nice to have that kind of reflection of, oh, this is where I was going. And then also the cringe moments of being like, oh, yeah, I know why I resonate with that character because their problematic behavior are the problematic behaviors that I had in my early 20s. Like, it's just, right. it's so interesting to see that and be like, oh, no, now I know how I know that I have grown and changed from this. And more than that can articulate the specific ways too, right? It's not just a dubious, amorphous, I have grown. No, in this particular way, I have grown. In this particular way, I have grown. And so that's just nice to like have now given like how sorry for myself I was feeling in December. That's awesome that you can recognize those shifts and changes in the way that we... yeah grow especially with this particular conversation what Mm -hmm. it is it's very fascinating and again brings up what this show is all about is that relationship to our psychology ourselves and Mm -hmm. media culture cultural artifacts yeah that's really fascinating and I've similar, very similar experience in, in the rewatch of the Queerest Folk of being able to, I remember where I was. I remember what I was doing. I remember when I first saw this episode or that episode. I remember spending time between classes on my laptop that had a display <laughs> watching. I carried like the box sets of it in my backpack with my books and stuff. Just calls back to a particular time. And the, yeah, the things that we're learning from that and what I was learning about. First of all, I guess what very unrealistic ideas about queer life from Queerest Folk. Yeah. In some ways. But it also, yeah, made me, I was looking at it as like, gosh, yeah, I wish I had friends like this or mm-hmm. connections like that, which, yeah, don't exist. We're, just, we're too busy in this world now. Because <laughs> that's yeah. another thing, watching that, watching Queers Folk in 2000, like nobody has, they have cell phones and they sometimes call each other, but a lot of times it's not like it is now. The whole world has changed. So yeah. just relationships, a lot of things that just feel very unrealistic. Yeah. And a little bit of that with looking as well, too, where yeah. they... Looking in many ways was like they wanted it to be structurally and tonally different than Queerest Folk, where right. it was a lot of focus on the party, on the sex, and then Queerest Folk takes it, wanted to do the same thing that it did with girls, like HBO did with girls. Mm. And it was just like it, you add more dimensions. I was talking to another friend and they were like, Yeah, looking is how realistic was it that it was a group of friends in San Francisco and there was no one who was Asian, no gay Asian people in San mm. Francisco. Right. So it's not a it's not a perfect show, but 
that's the also recognizing my own capacity for deep capacity for empathy of other people and just being able to connect with those stories. Yeah, it's been a journey, this coming out of the cold and the winter and the quote unquote depression of it all. But it has been, um, I've been feeling a lot better lately. And uh, thank you for this mental health minute. And please send all bills to my address that's on file and we'll see what we can do about getting it. We'll see what percentage of reimbursement I can get. No, I, uh, again, I, I do appreciate what you're saying. And this has been something that came up. I'm in a class right now for a, um, a couples therapy. So we're learning these different perspectives on doing couples therapy, different um, methodologies for it. Mm-hmm. And what happens is we also spend a lot of time in class talking about relationships and what they should look like and what they and how we learn about love and how we learn about being in relation to other people. And it is very fascinating because I just looked, I never watched looking. It just, I was totally uninterested in it. And maybe it's because of this exactly here, Keith Olick writing for the BBC opined that looking is one of the most revolutionary depictions of gay life ever on TV. And that's because it makes it totally ordinary. And so we were talking, so there's, in my couples class, there are three of us queer cis males. One who's almost 50, I'm almost 40, and then another, he's got to be 23 or 24. And so we had this conversation through class conversation, although I did reference because I asked him directly, the youngest one, about mm-hmm. his thoughts on it. In that we've, we, th- the three of us have witnessed very different transitions in queer life and queer culture. Sure. And what we're like growing up with. And so when I was growing up, like Queer as Folk was like, that's what you were learning. And it was this tension too, between should we be monogamous and married? And those we, we, we didn't have those rights and those sorts of things yet. And so in Brian Kinney, you have this almost like ubermensch construct of a gay male, very like rich, successful, has sex with everyone. That's he's portrayed as this ideal, but obviously he's got all of his other stuff, right? It's a show. But the we were really sold this kind of thing of it's not normal or natural for gay people to be in relationships. First of all, that's kind of cultural conversation at the time. And then it's and further, we shouldn't even want to be like you have that radical queer perspective mm-hmm. of we should reject heteronormativity at all costs, we should re- refuse assimilation, we should. And that's always been that kind of tension. And obviously, when looking came along, I think it really got caught up in that maybe it would do better now. If they tried to do a show like Heartbreaker, Heartbreaker is, wait, is that it? Heart uh, Stopper. Heart Stopper. Heart Heart Stopper. Heartstopper is almost now, because we were talking about, obviously, there's a lot of like hookup culture and all of that within queer culture. And so the younger guy was saying a lot of people want to be monogamous and just find one person young people. And when you, they're leading these conversations about making pride family friendly, taking sex out of the Folsom Street fair. And being, mm-hmm. there's a push from younger people of it's not, but it's not like an assimilation agenda. It's just, it's just pushing back against, we don't have to be like this. We don't have to just be like sex yeah. machines. We're going to be emptiness. accepting, sorry, if we're going to be accepting of all expressions mm-hmm. of love and lifestyle, mm-hmm then we also have to be accepting of folks who want, who are like, want monogamy and want to push back against the queering of quote unquote queering of those institutions. Which I mean, again, has always existed. Obviously the fight for gay marriage, a lot of the focus was like, and that was the critique, right? It was like a lot of people Mm -hmm. like we should, 
we're the same as straight people and we should behave in like we should like they they're looking down on people that want to have polyamorous or non-monogamous relationships and pushing this very moralistic agenda. So it's always been that tension, but watching how it evolves in culture is really fascinating. So I wonder if looking would have done better a decade later when there's more people that are, I don't know, this is just speculation. It's just that the normalizing, right? It's like part of being queer. Like for me, like growing up, there was a histrionic streak in it too. It wasn't just being queer as like this identity or truth, but also it fucked with people and made people uncomfortable. And that was fun. There was like a dangerousness to it that's gone. Uh, And queer folk really, I think, tapped into that. And now we have something like Heartstopper, and I think even Love, Simon falls into this, where it's a little more wholesome, or it's serving this idea that like queer people can do, can have like um, more culturally conventional relational development that for so long Mm -hmm. has been denied queer people, right? Having relationships in high school, learning to be in relation with people and growing up able to experiment and do those sorts of things that I we couldn't do when I was younger. And certainly yeah. not when people were coming from the 50s and 60s. You weren't walking in the hallway holding your boyfriend's hand. Yeah. And again, that's not true for everybody, but just the idea that's yeah. even possible that exists somewhere yeah. is pretty radical change. You went through people of queer people of our generation where it's like we we got to empathize with we got to feel representation in like clueless and the romantic comedies of the 90s never been kissed can't hardly wait but now we as the people who are in charge of making the stuff we can now give ourselves the representation that we were looking for in like a heart stopper yeah. where it's queering that convention and bringing it to giving folks a more giving folks who are coming up represent a a, a source of representation that is actually most aligned with their own identities. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's very interesting, this conversation. And so we've decided to completely skip black history month and just go to pride month. Yeah. Thanks everyone. (laughs) Bye. But all right, enough of this chatter. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to actually get into a movie. Yay. Abby. Yay. 1974. We'll be right back. Do you like to laugh, geek out on music, and learn all about that band or artist who had that one song back in the day, but then seemed to fall off the face of the earth? If so, you need to subscribe to One Hit Thunder. Together with an array of interesting and hilarious guests, we do a weekly dive into one-hit wonders like Eiffel 65's Blue, Crayshon's Gucci Gucci, EMF's Unbelievable, Delamitri's Roll to Me, Los Del Rio's Macarena, Musical Youth's Past the Duchy, and even Patrick Swayze's She's Like the Wind. So are you subscribed to One Hit Thunder or what? As Desiree would say, you gotta be. And as K7 would encourage, you gotta come, baby, come, and join in on the fun of the One Hit Thunder podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. 
All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. All right, welcome back. So a couple of months ago, back in December, we celebrated 50 years of The Exorcist, which was released in uh, December of 1973. And so we thought it would be fun to dive in as part of our Horror Noir, Black History Month examinations to look at the 1974 film Abbey, which was open for about a month before it was closed down by Warner Brothers, who accused it of ripping off The Exorcist. And it was released on Christmas Day in 1974. So almost just one day under a year after The Exorcist was released. It did do really well, made a couple of million dollars on a $100,000 at that time budget in that month that it was open, which is pretty incredible. I'd be curious about the alternate history where this movie stayed open and just played out. I wonder what we what would have happened with it? Maybe it, would we even be discussing it? Because part of the reason Abby is important is because it was buried and became like a cult film. But anyway, so it's a it's part of that black exploitation horror, which we discussed in the past, obviously, about this fine, upstanding Christian woman, Horman, being invaded yes. by some sort of African Yoruba sex monster and all hell breaking loose. And... Yeah, so it does. It has a lot in common with The Exorcist, a lot of similar vibes. I definitely see why. But again, I think Warner Brothers probably just drew more attention to the film and um, because it survived. I think there's even rumor that they were supposed to get all the prints of it and destroy it. So it survived and has become this sort of cult. Oh, and also, obviously, I I do think there's some influence of Rosemary's Baby in it as well. But we've got Carol Speed starring as the titular Abby Williams, William Marshall as Bishop Garrick Williams. And sorry, one second, I can't get my thing here. Yeah, William Marshall, obviously of Blackula fame. Terry Carter, Austin Stoker. We've got directed by William Girdler who I was trying to find out what else he did. But anyway, so directed by him, written by G. Cornell Lane. Joe, what did you think of Abby? (laughs) Did you watch the YouTube? (laughs) I did watch the YouTube uh, version of Abby. Look, William Marshall makes the movie for me. Mm -hmm. This very regal father may I, father may I, father Marin character. (laughs) But I got to say it was like, it was solidly okay. The whole time I'm watching it, I'm trying to be like, this is different enough from The Exorcist. Yeah. It's different enough that I I feel like Warner Brothers is just being Warner Brothers and wanted the monopoly on, I don't know, possession. But this was just interesting in that from that standpoint, I'm like, okay, I can see why they would say that, but I think it's different enough. And it was also just fun to see the standard, the tropes that have become synonymous with black exploitation, right? The music, mm-hmm. the kind of gratuitous, very practical, campy special effects. And what I think was the most interesting thing, and I hope I'm curious what research you've dug up about this is just like the idea that it's the you're fighting off this demon from this African sex demon, 
right? The from oh gosh, what's its name? It's Eshu. not Pazuzu. Ashu, thank you. Mm-hmm. You're fighting. Maybe, out although in the end, we're not sure, right? It's, yes. Or is it like know. a lesser demon? <laughs> yeah. But in general, Eshu, yeah, one goes of the through. Orishas. And then also like relating it to a Christianity type thing, which is what like a lot of black Christian tradition is informed by the blending of that and specifically Yoruba Orisha religion too. So that was really, honestly, I really wish they would remake this film (laughs) because I think that there's a lot more there and it would be interesting to see what kind of, um, what kind of movie could be made with this, a similar subject, but overall it was solidly fine. Yeah. I think I'd watch it again, but it was, uh, it was like, it wasn't a watch that I wasn't engaged and entertained. Yes, I agree. I would like to see like a remastered kind of, cause I've only ever seen this movie with like the the quality that's on YouTube. And again, there Mm -hmm. was a really concerted effort to destroy the film. So the fact that it exists at all, it's great. And something that we can at least see and engage with. Yeah. I would be curious to see again with all the exorcism films and stuff out there. I think this would work really well if somebody took it and made a a satirical film or something that was like purposely, commenting i don't know if doing it as a horror film maybe again i guess it would really depend on how it was treated but i think some something out of i'd be curious to see what jordan peele did with this or or somebody from blumhouse or hell even just no never mind i was trying to think of other comedians that i think would make good writers directors but i'd be curious yeah if if it was approached in a very self-aware meta way i think it could be very good looking at the film itself yeah, it's very fascinating. The So yeah, it's obviously a very different film than The Exorcist in some ways. Surface level, similar, right? We're going to some foreign land and or at least it's, it's given this exoticism of when the <clears throat> in The Exorcist sort of the Arab world and here we're in Africa, we let loose some kind of spirit, monster, demon who possesses mm-hmm. a woman. Or a young girl. On the surface, it does. It has some similar things happening in it. But in The Exorcist, you have Chris McNeil and Reagan. They're like devoid of spirituality. So they're not like good Christian people. The whole thing about The Exorcist, it's they're not. Why is this happening to us? We're not believers. So here you have this fine, upstanding woman, wife of the. She's a minister's wife as well, right? Isn't her husband the reverend? I think her husband is also the son of Marshall's character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like this, again, it's, I'm pretty sure the creatives, this is another, like when we were talking about Ma, I feel like, I think the creators involved were mostly white people using, again, when we're talking about like what's in horror stuff that we've seen before, where we've seen these movies that kind of take African spiritual religions and turns them into something evil or they're they're so different from Christianity that Mm -hmm. it's this evil. I like this quote from it. Cast the religion as singularly odd, ahistorical, and evil with Yoruba. So we can get into that. Some of the talk that's in um, it's cover. It's like focusing on like the use of those religious iconography, religious ideologies to create this monstrosity. Whereas in the exorcist, you get a very clear Christianity. It's like the God and the devil, but this is Christian woman being attacked by this black entity. Something that was 
that I appreciated about some of the other readings that I was doing. There isn't a ton of analysis on Abby, sure. unfortunately. I think there could be a lot more. We have what's in Horror Noir. There's some stuff out there, obviously, com- conversation. But what I thought was cool from Horror Noir is talking about like Abby is this like fine upstanding woman and what's the worst thing that she could do, right? As this Christian woman, like become some kind of sex crazed, indecent uh, person, yeah. right? So there's this horror again, this weaponizing of, of black women's sexuality is like dangerous and fraught. But what's interesting about Abby, and I mean, I guess we could look at it in The Exorcist, but because she's a child, it's it gets strange. Because Abby's thing, the demon that's in her, goes off to have sex with men and murder them. That's the thing Mm -hmm. that it's doing. But it's a male demon possessing a woman's body. It's an interesting... We could step back and give Abby a queer lens (laughs) in a strange way. Because it's like... It asks people, like, oh, you want to fuck Abby, right? It's There's this awareness that it's in this woman's body. Yeah, the film lays bare and complicates the heteronormativity as men are attracted to the outward appearances of the female Abby who oozes sexuality and has little problem seducing her prey. Yeah, I don't know. I, that wasn't something that I was thinking about when I first saw the movie. And I guess, again, with the, with the exorcist, like Pazuzu is also a male demon possessing a young girl's body. But he, mm-hmm. it's like that is more using her in other ways. Yeah. Rather than Abby is already um, is an adult woman, so going out and doing these yeah. things, it's a, it just puts it's a, like a different twist. Yeah, I don't know if that was something. That you <laughs> well, thought. no, it's interesting because I'm reminded you saying that also reminds me that the Audrey two in mm. Little Shop <laughs> is like a female plant, right? Right, supposedly, but voiced by voiced by a man, and even then, the way that the plant is seducing with the intent to eat but seducing audrey yeah. one is really interesting there so i honestly i didn't even think about it i didn't think about the the implication that like this male voice is fuck me right. in the same way that like it was with reagan and the exorcist but because it's i just thought it was interesting the fact that there's a sex demon and but that's the way that that's the thing that is the most deadly is the weaponization of sexuality yeah. And I just found that as an interesting thing. And especially because we know this from horror noir, we know this from other texts that black bodies are often sexualized, often hypersexualized, and especially the especially young black girls, they almost they're sexualized in such a way that they're like they don't have an adolescence. They immediately go to being they immediately go to being adult women. And mm-hmm. it's interesting to see that happen here as a way of as a negative but also in a very much way that there's a certain empowerment that comes from being in control of that sexuality or harnessing that and so to see abby move about the world possessed she's also intensely confident and Mm -hmm. somebody who doesn't really care about what it is that's being said about her no uh, yeah uh, precisely which again is why in the film so like in the exorcist right reagan kind of rots away. She's becoming like mm-hmm. very scary looking. Whereas Abby is mm-hmm. not, there is this total, like that is the thing. She's like more beautiful and you really only get the voice and like the eyes, but otherwise she's, she remains very desirable. There aren't those outward markings of like demon possession and other things, you know, ripping their faces and mm-hmm. you know, doing all that. She becomes more and more um, 
beautiful, seductive. And yeah. again, that threat, right? Because it's she's doing what she's supposed to do. She's fine, upstanding member. She's protected by her husband and the church and her father and like all these things. And to emancipate from that and go out into the world, it's mm-hmm. it, like that's like such this egregious thing, right? So this demon is giving her this agency that is a mm-hmm. threat to power structures for women in general, obviously for Abby. Somewhat in The Exorcist. We know there's a relationship between like Marin and the demon. And, you know, there are these other things that play and pulling Karis into it. It's not ex- exactly clear motivation, but Abby really, there's, I, I feel like there's not, we don't know why her. Shouldn't she be protected mm-hmm. by her beliefs in God and this sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Why is she victim of this demon? <laughs> yeah. Um, and an interesting thing to be like, this is a way to get back at, Marshall's character, right? Because yeah, he frees, he's tricked into freeing the Arusha from issue from uh, whatever the box. The, yeah, the yeah, and and then like goes and possesses his daughter-in-law, right? That seems like an interesting choice, but again, it also goes into that kind of paternalistic. We need to protect our the we need to protect our women and the sort of thing and the which if you want to like in just thinking about what i just said we can take that paternalism even a step further and it's yeah the worst thing in the world is for her to be like have any agency sexual or right. otherwise yeah it becomes such a threat to established roles yeah in society oh yeah abby was written and directed by a white man william girdler and he was part of aip American International Pictures, which I think did quite a bit of exploitation films as well. But sorry, there was something else I wanted to say. Oh, there. W- <laughs> there's also something again, it's yeah, with the exorcist. So we also have to contend with this idea of the abject. So the things that should not be said or should not be seen, such as in the exorcist, like the crucifix scene and something you saying that to her mother and you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's mm-hmm. a very similar thing here where it's just the thought of this happening to this fine upstanding woman adds like this layer of horror emerges from the fact that a woman has broken with her proper feminine role she's made it put her unsocialized body on display and to make matters worse she worse she's done all this before the shock dies of two male clerics that's in reference to the exorcist but also mm-hmm. fits really well into uh, the conversation uh, regarding abby so it's and then again when we talk about respectability politics and like what how black women are expected to behave in both in white society in blacks in, in the constructions yeah. of white supremacy and outside of it. Because again, there's there, there's the what's happening in Abby with the way like her husband, she's part of the church and that's also a very controlled system as well. So for her to go to be possessed by this demon, it's like an affront and then to go off running around having monster sex with everybody. She can't just, yeah, it adds more of like this. It's very morality tale. Yes. And just again, the end to Nanarib do in the documentary, Horror mm-hmm. Noir talks about this as well, is that the black exploitation, like taking things and using Africa as a way to connect or to to show that particular side of history to black folks in a media representation, right? Blackula's mm. whole thing about like slave trade and mm. and yeah, and, yeah. and the connection there and then here with yoruba with the yoruba orisha culture mm-hmm. is really interesting and just one of the one of the things that's 
really affecting about modern reads of black exploitation of like how do you have this entire film industry where it's based it's high camp overwhelmingly camp but at the same time also trying to do some really cool stuff that like you could do now right you can have you could probably do blackula now and have it be like the remake of the candy man right have it right. be this thing that's an entire thing about enslaving enslaved Africans being forced to come here and what does that do? And it's really fascinating that there was a genre that does that. And it, it, we don't talk about that. I think that we, oh, I, we meaning like regular everyday people who engage with, right. Not us, you and I, we talk about that all the time, but like film people talk about all the time. You and I talk about all the time. And it's also just a testament to you just make the movies that you want to see and eventually make the movies that you want to see for the audience that you feel will go see them. And it's providing a certain level of representation that we're not seeing yet in mainstream like movies, especially in the 70s. Yeah, I agree. And there's something more. I wish that just in general, I was like better educated on these like intersections of like the influence of Christianity around the world on mm -hmm. different religions, on different faiths, on different people. Sure. What is what if we step back and we're looking at what is this film, even like for black people watching this film who are Christians or who practice a something derived from like the Yoruba traditions on display, or just something else, whatever other religions, anybody watching this, if you're depending on where you're mm -hmm. coming from, what does this movie say about that history for African people, yeah. you know, because in the end, it comes back that they do an exorcism, Christianity, this Western God was reasserted as better or as as the thing that has to save this black woman and therefore yeah. black people, all people. And it's also the blending of the two, right? Yes. In the same in, in the exorcism scene at the end of the film, you yeah. have Marshall's character in a Roman collar, right? In the, the Roman collar, but then wearing dashiki and invoking the Orishas and then immediately takes out a giant cross around his neck, which was so just comically large. <laughs> See, yeah. he, wants the, he wants this devil to know who he's rolling with. And talking about God and the different spirits, and it was just so interesting and fascinating to see that because that's also like how that blending of the culture is also the same kind of blending of the religions that you have over 300 years of enslavement and keeping the things that uh, resonate with you. I was just reading an article a few weeks ago that was talking about like the it's talking about the ancient Chamorro people and how their relationship, the relationship with ancient people for with Christianity and how over the centuries, like that's evolved. Right. And like right. the things that were the things that we took that we uh, the, the things that we resonate with and the culture took from Catholic practice that are related to ancient practices of chanting and mm -hmm. polytheism and all of those things. It was just really interesting how they took this very long article to draw that line all the way through. Yeah. And to see that kind of play out in this film is really fascinating. And I can just imagine like being like a young kid watching this and in my mind, it's like a young kid watching this and then like an uncle, right? Like a learned uncle being like, that's how 
this is where our people come from, or this is something that is experienced that is in our family or in other families, or just, it was, this is the other reason why Abby was solidly fine, because I wasn't really enjoying the movie for what it was. I was enjoying thinking about these other things and all of these other ways in which it could have affected other folks. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, it's like this, yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Cause it's like, when we talk about, Christianity as like a colonizing device, as an imperialist device, right? So Mm -hmm. it's like, how do we think about what it's like to watch films or engage in art that is saying something like historical, like it's blending or kind of warping so that you begin to believe yourself, right? So you, so say for instance, you, let's like say if you were very extremely Catholic in the sense of fervent, practicing Catholic, right? And you looked at the, and you had family or you looked at your history and you looked at traditions on Guam, the faith structures, this poly as evil, and you believe that it's evil based on these cultural experiences. And that's what I'm mm-hmm. curious about. Like Abby, when it's, you're seeing these, this conversation happening about faiths that are natural to this part of the world. And it's, mm-hmm. but Christianity is better. And you know, that where you come from is an evil thing. And to invest in that idea and believe in that. And I guess yeah. really for anybody, cause it's the same. Like anytime I see my family members who really assert like, Jesus and like Christianity and we have to take bring people to that and this is the one true faith. It's just I'm so befuddled by it. like how can like how can we make such I, I guess that's faith, right? But it's like when it's like involves identity too and it involves like history and it involves other things where it's like there's this there's part of you that's just evil. So I guess for queer people yeah. too feeling if you're like a fervent Christian you decide you're not going to be in relationships with other people because it's a sin. And so the only answer is to be celibate and abstain from any relationships, right? Because you believe you're evil if you do. So I just like in, in this spectacular degradation, exploitation, horror, and the monsters feminine and Abby and the exorcist, it ends with this c- comment about of the film's conclusion, Dr. Coleman, that's the writer of horror noir notes, Abby is saved by her father-in-law, husband, and police officer brother while being restored to favor with her male Western God. The film forces us to examine the ways in which the battle between good and evil is well-worn weapon of white supremacy, whose impact continues to linger in innocuous ways. Ultimately, it begs us to recognize the subjectivity of what we consider evil in the first place. And so that's what I, mm. when I'm watch when I was watching Abby, I was like, man, there's this real tension. It's you wonder about, especially this time period, like the seventies. And I'm thinking of the changes in feminism that were happening and conversations about yeah. like womanism and particularly for like black women and, and embracing Africa as not just a place from which we, we as black people are taken stole. I'm not mm-hmm. black. Sorry. That's not, that sounds weird, but I, I'm trying to say the sense of pride and sense of connection to Africa yeah. is what I mean. Yeah. We as the people that were talking about this then in the seventies, it's kind of what it's like to see a film like this that has like an all black cast, like demonizing a literally and figuratively an African religion and African faith. It'd be very interesting and, to read that book. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It would have been interesting to have TJ on this episode as well. We could have him on everything. Because there's, uh, there's a lecture that TJ gives that I actually have sat in on that talks about, it's actually a lecture, a small hour lecture of a course that he teaches called Africa and the Western Imagination. Mm-hmm. And one of the aspects, one of the tenets of the course 
that is covered is the idea of what does Africa mean to black people, black Americans. Yeah. yeah. And goes into how even Africa, the continent, the con- the concept of Africa is something that black people have a very specific relation to. In the Western, the white Western imagination, it is a place that is savage and wild, but it's waiting there. In in Toto's Africa, hurry boy, it's waiting there for you. It's this right. place that's waiting. And it's and then you have in the black American ma- imagination, where especially more recently with Black Panther and Wakanda and all of that is that what if we, it's the place where they are from, but it's like centuries removed and mm-hmm. still it's a place that they can return to and feel like they'll be welcome. In this case with Abby, it's the opposite of that, right? It is right. a place where they are, Africa is not seen as this place that is home. It is seen as a place where the demons are and right. especially the, the the wild sexuality of indigenous people that quote unquote the uncivilized right Right. and so now you see that kind of playing out in also in an interesting way here yeah and again when we think about the people so again abby is in we talked about last week with mods a film written and the creatives are white people making comments about black the black experience and black history and yeah, you have this thing, this thing from Africa that comes and totally liberates this woman in the 70s, mm-hmm. right in the midst of mm-hmm. this second wave feminism, as we call it. And, and that makes her completely unacceptable to the Western world and to the men mm-hmm. in her family by embracing this African, the spirit of Africa. It's yeah, it's just what is being said. So again, and I can only speak to looking at it that way and reading, but it's, yeah, I'm very curious about those and like the, those liminal spaces of believe in Christianity, believe in Jesus, believe whatever you want. But it's, I still, sometimes I question like how like how what it's like to because I'm not a person of faith. I, I'm an atheist. So I don't really know what it's like to I have memories when I was younger and believed in God and had a thing of like, how can I hold in one hand this like all loving, unconditional God and this idea that I'm gonna mm-hmm. go to hell for like how so it's yeah, how do you live in this like space of like in this film, being like a good Christian person means to remove to be a good person in all, at all, not even Christian, to be good woman, behaved woman, not have any ties to identity. Yeah. It's very interesting. <laughs> Can we also talk about the fact that they keep calling him father, but because he is Abby's husband's father and not I just love that. It was like, he's not a priest. And I, I had to like go back a little bit and be like, I think they're just calling him father because he is a father. <laughs> he is literally this guy's father. Yeah, no, he's a bishop, isn't he? Bishop Garrett Williams, and then the reverend. Yeah, but I, I, but like it's confusing. Yeah, it's confusing, and he goes and does all the stuff. He goes and does the stuff, does his research, but it's just it just made me laugh because I partway through I was like, is it? Are they just calling him father because that's his father? And why would they not call him bishop then? I don't know. I don't know. I've always any bishop that I've come in contact with. I've called them Bishop, not called them father. Yeah. I, you know, I can't speak to level. that. Not addressed anybody in the, in such a way. I guess not true. When I was a kid, I guess we would have called them pastor, John, pastor, Joe, mm-hmm. pastor, whoever, but not, I didn't have that kind of hierarchy. Catholicism has a lot more, I think, hierarchy sure. than like a 
Southern Baptist Church. Just you have your preacher, jo- brother. We said that a lot, brother Sarah, brother, brother Joshua, brother Joe. Peace I do know. You, I did read jo- William. What I said. Peace be with you, brother Joshua. Yes, and also with you. Awful. <laughs> I do know that William Marshall. I, I guess apparently did bring in some of the Yoruba uh, conversations as well. I think he was trying to make the film more clear, maybe, but he was very mm-hmm. unhappy with it in general. Um, not a surprise. Um, I think he was just, I, again, I think there's, there was a lot of potential with this film to say a lot Mm -hmm. of things, but again, Mm -hmm. it was made with small budget and what it was trying to follow the exorcist and Rosemary's baby and trying to make good on those. So maybe, maybe some of what it could have been was lost in the process. So yeah, I agree with you. It'd be interesting to see this be remade. All right. Let's see. Let's get again. This was more of just. I encourage people to go and watch the film and see what you think of it, especially as a response to The Exorcist. I think there's a lot of really good, I think there's a lot of really good material in it yeah. for discussion. So I'm glad that we hold it. Come on. Sorry, Lily's in the way. <laughs> uh, I'm glad that we watched it because I, I think it's, I think it's a, it's a really interesting cultural artifact that should get more attention. Awesome. I agree. And <laughs> I can't wait to see Gugu and Bataraldu come back as Abby in the remake. There we go. I love it. All right. Thank you as always for listening. Joe, have a good night. Good night. Fright School is produced by Joshua Napier and Joe Farron. Our intro was edited by Davy Boy Productions. Our logo was designed by Jamie Channel Guzman. Episodes are edited and engineered by Joe Farron. Fright School is produced in terrifyingly beautiful San Diego, California. listening to the Geekscape Network.